You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Chris Claremont, recommending that you take a listen to Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Excalibur 1B. And this is a continuation from our previous episode, which is covering the first volume of the epic collection called The Sword is Drawn. Um, I don't exactly know what I'm going to call this episode because I'm going to use The Sword is Drawn title for the previous one. So I'll have to come up with a good idea. This is covering a period of Excalibur from 1988 to 1999. And I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I'm your Excalibur host, Johnny Cannon. Now, we're going to continue right where we left off because we kind of got into the nitty-gritty with Captain Britain in the previous uh, previous episode, and that really kind of took up a lot of our time, which wasn't a problem because it was fascinating and I learned a lot. But we're going to continue on with issue number four, run through issue number 11, and then tackle some Marvel Comics Presents at the end. Is that right? That's correct, yep. And we have Mojo Mayhem in there as well. Forgot about that one. We always forget about that one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's good. So I don't know. I genuinely don't know why. Last time we talked about a little bit of uh, what listeners had to say, and I forgot to say one of the comments that I got on Instagram. So I'm going to say that right now. Uh, Cody is rodeo. Wrote I have so many of these single issues, and so I never bought this epic. But I liked Excalibur a lot as a kid. Not sure how great these would be if I read them now. But the best thing in this series, in my mind, is give Kitty and Nightcrawler a place to develop as deeper characters and set them up as leaders in the future X-Comics they inhabit. Yeah, that's true, because Kitty's a, one of the headmasters of the school in the comics currently. Yeah, and, and, and Curtis Lay, I mean, he does become, I mean, it's, he really is a leader in, in Davis's run um, and, and leads a, a secondary team of Excalibur at one point as well. He trains up the technics, so... Yeah, he, he definitely grows as a character in this run. Yeah, you can tell that Claremont really favors Kitty and Nightcrawler in these stories. Um, and I think mainly to sell the book because they're the most popular X characters at the time. Again, I can't remember if we covered it night of doubt, but, but he's, I, I mean, I, with Rachel, it's a little bit different. He's, he's, he's making the character much more likable. He's smoothing the rough edges off the character. Um, and he's really playing, building a friendship between her and Kitty, which I suppose replaces the, uh, the friendship she had with Eliana um, from the New Mutants. Right. Um, but, but that's one of the key dynamics. Um, and I know a lot of people sort of read into the subtext in that relationship as well. So um, it, it's, it's really, really good. Just before we start, I want to mention that I got a chance to talk with Terry Kavanaugh, who is the editor of Excalibur. So I'll be sprinkling a few little interview clips throughout this, this uh, episode of his conversation. And when we get to the Marvel Comics Presents issues, I also have a little clip from Eric Larson that I'm going to share. So uh, stay tuned for those. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll come up. I'll bring them up as they come up naturally in our conversation. But anyway, why don't we get further on into this book and start with issue number four. 
Yeah, issue four, I'd like to start off just by mentioning the cover because this, this cover's uh, possibly the most famous of all Excalibur covers, which tended to have uh, jokes or, or, or not a gimmick, but um, have a sort of degree of innovation in the covers uh, during Davis's run. So this one's a famous cover that's just uh, pure black with a janitor st- uh, standing in a little spotlight, sweeping up some mess, and he's telling you what's going on inside the comic rather than depicting the usual sort of uh, superhero antics in the in the front cover, and it's it's funny, and it's just it's just really clever as well. I can re- I can just imagine seeing this one on a newsstand and just standing out because it's so black and stark compared to every other comic out there. I think it would really really draw your eye, um, and it would be very. I would want to pick it up just based on the humor of that cover. Yeah, I was a teenager at the time, and and. When I used to get my comics back then, it was in, it wasn't a newsstand; it was a newsagent. So you'd have lots of Marvel comics along the bottom row, maybe about ten um, comics, and this really, really stood out. You had to leaf through them as well; they're in no particular order. Um, but Excalibur at that point was one of the comics I really looked for because I was such a big fan of Alan Davis by that point. But this cover absolutely leapt out because it's just so different than the standard fair. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and the way that it's presented in this, it really stands out in particular against the splash page, which is absolutely beautiful. It's uh, Courtney Ross um, looking at a picture of her kissing Captain Britain, um, a signed photo, and you can see the reflection of uh, Courtney Ross in the picture, which is obviously shown her now in the picture of her when she was younger. And you can also see a reflection in the computer screen. And what I didn't pick up on it before is by showing the two reflections of Courtney uh, Ross, it's a subtle nod to what's going to come, this idea of two Courtney Rosses. Oh, um, yeah, right. Yeah, I, I totally missed that the first time round as well, as well as my shocking discovery <laughs> with one of the characters in this as well, um, which which hopefully we can mention briefly later on. So, yeah, it's a great cover, uh, amazing splash page. It's a phenomenal start to the comic. Um, this issue is sort of continuing some of the themes we've spoken about already around body swapping or, or villains um, taking over the bodies of Excalibur um, or members of Excalibur taking over the bodies of villains um, which happened earlier on with, with Kitty um, ending up possessing one of the war wolves when it, when it tried to skin her, um, which is quite interesting. Uh, this is a really excellent issue where Excalibur take on the crazy gang and get defeated um, and at the end it's only really Kitty that's the last person standing and in between we get uh, a continuation of the Kurt, Megan, Brian love triangle, also with Courtney as as a kind of I suppose a fourth wheel in that as well. There's a really <laughs> dubious scene where Nightcrawler's working out in his jungle gym, and uh, Megan comes in in a tiny bikini and he starts tickling her, and they nearly <laughs> kiss, but they're interrupted at the last minute which is just, I don't know, there's all sorts of different levels of inappropriate in that scene, but it's the writing and it's still fantastic as well, and the art's absolutely beautiful as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and like you say, the, the way these characters bounce off each other, the, the interpersonal dynamics is fantastic. They, they, they feel like real people. It's quite interesting as well when Kitty's talking to Brian and Megan, she makes it, you see her, uh, her, her thought balloon and it's saying great that's both bimbo's heard from she's quite dismissive of the two or maybe she's been kind of sarcastic to herself so again it's that kind of you're getting an insight into the characters and whether they actually like each other or not so it's classic soap opera stuff i suppose from superhero comics 
the elephant in the room appears in this as well, and this is something I wanted to ask you about, Curtis. What do you think of Arcade, who appears as the big villain in this one? <laughs> do you like Arcade? Do I like Arcade? It depends on who's writing him. I do like yeah. Claremont's Arcade, but there are other times when Arcade's just terrible. And I recently read, what is it, Avengers Arena? which is a more modern comic where all of these young mutants are put on an island and it's run by Arcade and they're forced to kill each other and whoever's the last person standing is the winner. And it's a fantastic series, absolutely fantastic. But this version of Arcade, he's definitely um, a lot more playful and over the top. He's almost a satire of golden age like the golden age joker who would place batman in the elaborate death traps with huge props and that kind of stuff yeah the giant typewriters and things yeah exactly yeah to draw that stuff yeah yeah it's fantastic which was quite good as well as i think it depends who's drawing it and what visual flair they bring to it john mm-hmm. Byrne, the first guy to draw him you know did the big pinball machines and um the kind of hall of mirrors effects and stuff like that which was great and alan davis brings in a little bit of the Terry Gilliam animations from Monty Python with giant feet squashing people. Yes, which is which is brilliant. Um, the funny thing about Arcade is he must be the world's least efficient assassin. It must cost an absolute fortune to build um, Murder World. At least in this case, there is a kind of abandoned old factory or steel mill um, in North England, so he does have plenty of room. But it's, uh, it's 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 fantastic stuff, and you're right; it's got a real golden age feel. Um, I think this is a, a great issue. Um, it kind of goes awry a little bit where Rachel, they try and swap her into the body of the executioner, which is a robot, um, and the robot explodes. So at the end, Rachel, there's a cliffhanger there where she might be possessed by the robot or her personality might be erased already because the other Excalibur characters, their, their minds go into the bodies of the crazy gang and the minds of the crazy gang go into Excalibur. Um, which is fantastic because Alan Davis really plays up the difference in body language. Yeah, that's one of the things that I absolutely love about Alan Davis's artwork is that if you go to page one forty six, there's that middle panel where Kitty, or sorry, where Nightcrawler and Megan are in the foreground, but it's not actually Nightcrawler and Megan. It's the Crazy Gang in their bodies, and Alan Davis poses them in a way that they would never stand. And then if you look behind them, you see the Joker and the Knave, but those are Nightcrawler and Megan in poses that Nightcrawler and Megan would typically stand. So it's like he he knows these characters so well that even in the other, when, they're, when they swap bodies, we can tell who's who based on the way that they stand. It's not just different body shapes, it's different body language as well. It's, it's fantastic. The, the other thing I was going to say about this, just the last thing, was that um, we talked a little bit about the covers um, and there's also pinups in the back of um, these issues as well, which oh, are shown yeah. drawn by. They're they're wonderful. But, but there's a lot of really really good cliffhangers as well. Like the final panels, and um, there's a really good. I mean, page one four eight. That last panel is just fantastic. You've got Kitty in the corner, and she's hiding with Lockheed. You've got in the background, the Crazy Gang and Excalibur's bodies dragging away. Um, Excalibur and the Crazy Gang bodies totally defeated with with a sort of crowing arcade and a giant screen it's just it's just fantastic so we couldn't wait for the next issue when, when well when i was reading it as a, as a wee boy it's, it's just fantastic stuff great writing great art i think this is the issue that really bumps up the comedy as well the 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 issues that have come before this do have comedic elements 
but they're not as funny, just outright funny and just bizarre and absurd as this one, particularly because we are in Mojo World, or not Mojo World, uh, Murder World, doing weird things with weird characters and creatures. A lot of funny stuff is happening to Courtney and the Crazy Gang as well, just kind of our over-the-top characters. So this is where I think we really get a ramp up in the humor. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, your little Freudian slip there about Mojo World. Again, that's a continuing theme. These kind of surrealist nightmarish artificial realities that they, they seem to end up in yeah and again that's continuing i suppose on from jasper's warp as well but that's that's a continuing set as well it's a really good point okay moving on to issue number five the title of this one is sending the clowns and uh this one is basically you know kitty has to find a way to save courtney and all of the other Excalibur, how to, she has to figure out how to swap them back into their own bodies and save them. And so this whole issue takes place in Murder World, and we are taken through a, a, just a bunch of series of different sets and, and, uh, and scenes and scenarios that are played up. A lot of them are played up for laughs. And uh, one of the most interesting things to me here is that the, the person who swaps bodies with Megan doesn't know how to control Megan's shape-shifting. So Megan starts kind of shifting into different different forms. Like her one arm is hairy, the other arm looks like a tentacle or something like that, and and does, <laughs> she doesn't know how to control it. So, And this is kind of the first... If you don't know anything about Megan from the UK comics, this is kind of the first hint that we're really getting about her her powers and the kind of control that she has to have over it because we've seen her transform and get like huge with that juggernaut issue but nothing to this real extent here yeah definitely this issue's got a lot of easter eggs in it as well um and i think that's i'm I'm assuming that's something because this would have been done marvel style is something alan davis brought to the table on page 160 for example the spaceship that courtney rides is Anastasia, which is Dan Dare's spaceship, and Alan Davis was a massive Dan Dare fan. He was a big fan of Frank Hampson and Frank Bellamy that drew that nice. comic. That's why that's in there. It's a very distinctive design in the rocket ship, as well as the <laughs> rather interesting imagery in, uh, with Courtney. <laughs> I'd only noticed until now. It's quite a phallic spaceship, I suppose. That's the other right. thing I noticed is that Chambers is Scottish, and for some reason I'd never noticed this. It's only when he said, say your prayers, beastie. I was like, oh my God, that's the most Scottish-sounding man alive. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know if that was canon at that point, or whether they just did it because it was a British-based um, comic, but I thought that was quite a, a nice touch. But people in Scotland don't go about saying, this should put paid to yon wee perisher. <laughs> <laughs> but, aye, I, I guess uh, Chris Clement was famous for loving his regional dialects. Oh, yeah. The way he did, uh, like, Banshee, for instance, <laughs> is so over the top at times. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's uh, I'm sure my Irish friends <laughs> are probably laughing. Yep. Uh, Cats Laughing appeared as well in page 163, and they'd appeared a few times in X-Men because they were a real-life band that he was friends with. Um, as well so they, they they appear quite a bit i think they maybe popped up in new mutants i was wondering about that because the designs of these characters are very specific they're definitely more um caricatures rather than just drawings off the top of his head and i tried googling cats laughing and i couldn't find anything i've, I've heard them mentioned um i've seen some different uh blog posts and stuff and they talk about cats laughing i think they were an indie band from yeah. the 80s that makes sense um, so 
Well, they appear later on in this book in the Mojo Mayhem story, so we'll see them again. What did you think about uh, Courtney Ross in this? Because they really show how capable she is. At the front end, she escapes from her own... Well, she gets help to escape from a death trap, but then she knocks out Arcade, and she's shown to be really capable, which is quite a cool setup for the cliffhanger. Yeah, actually, I had that note as well. She knows how to take care of herself, and we even saw this in the last episode where she knew how to work the crowd when she was thrown into the situation that she was clearly uncomfortable in. Um, And then, yeah, at the very end, it is interesting that they made her so capable and then they just take her out. Yeah. But I think that the the reason why she was taken out so easily is just because she was caught way off guard. And again, it's it's a good way of showing just how capable the villain is when they can take out someone who can, you know, who is tough and resilient, can stand up for themselves. Yep cliffhanger the last page um 172 that final panel's absolutely fantastic it's just again what a cliffhanger to end on you, you just don't know what's coming next yeah yeah really good so issue six is the first well overt tie-in with inferno although you'd mentioned i think in issue four um rachel had sensed that his name changes is either Christopher, I think it's Christopher at this point, becomes Nathan. Can we just call him Baby Cable? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Cable. <laughs> um, he's in danger, so it's, it's kind of an odd start that she sensed he was in danger two issues ago, but when it opens up, she's sleeping. <laughs> so it's like, she's gone to bed anyway, even though her infant brother is in danger. I'll just go to bed anyway, I'm pretty tired. Rather <laughs> than it start with a light. But I mean, that's a really good way of obviously um, using the dream to, to catch up. So this story is that Rachel flies off to New York to rescue her brother from Inferno, which is really in full throat at this point. He's been captured by demons. I don't even know how you'd sum up Inferno (laughs) in a couple of lines. It's just so complicated and tied in with the X-Men, and it seemed to go on forever as well. Okay, I think I can can say it in one sentence. If you can do this, I'd be amazed. Demons, they want to take over New York... And the main demon knows that he needs 13 babies in order to open up a giant portal that'll let all the demons in. And one of those babies, I guess, is going to be... They all have to be baby mutants. And one of those babies is going to be baby Christopher. That's why this baby's in trouble. And then at the same time, Madeline Pryor is like, no, you're not taking my baby. And, uh, and gets manipulated by Mr. Sinister and, starts, and becomes the Goblin Queen. That's kind of a very, very loose... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving out a whole bunch of stuff, and I probably don't have all the accounts that are in the right order, but that's basically what that's about. <laughs> it's very impressive, but that is not one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> right, sorry. <laughs> it's the longest sentence in the history of mankind. It's, yeah, I never really thought it before until you explained it. It's kind of the X-Men meets Ghostbusters, but with babies. Oh, absolutely. And babies, extra babies. <laughs> yep, that's right. Oh, yeah, because Ghostbusters has a baby as well. That's right, Sigourney baby Weaver's well, baby. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. That's Ghostbusters yeah. 2, right? Uh, yes, it is Ghostbusters 2. And so this story takes place during the events of... Uh, of like it's in between scenes basically of of some of the new mutants and some of the x-men issues because uh, yeah. we see we actually i now i it's been a really long time since i've read any of the x-men issues to do with inferno um i just recently read the new mutants issues that have to do with inferno and some of these events 
uh, you can see taking place uh, in the outskirts of what's happening in those issues. But this is all very on the side. It, it's, a, it's a perfect tie-in because it relates to what's going on in the main book. But if you never read it, it doesn't matter. I mean, a large part of the, the comic is the journey to New York. I mean, Rachel gets there first because obviously she can fly super fast because she's Phoenix. But the journey, one of the things I really liked was actually shows Excalibur having to fly there because they don't have a jet. So Nightcrawler's riding on Captain Britain's shoulders, Megan's carrying Kitty, and Kitty's got to use <laughs> the world's worst toilet. <laughs> that was a one funny of, scene. pretty bad as well, um, it has to be said. Um, and that's fantastic. But also in that comedic scene, they show off again um, this evolving dynamic between uh, Captain Britain, Megan, and Nightcrawler. Um, Captain Britain is just absolutely oblivious to the way that the um, way that the sailors objectify Megan and her kind of the way her powers interact with that objectification as well really makes Nightcrawler uncomfortable and and it's kind of showing the chivalrous chivalrous side of his character but also that he's kind of I don't know if it is falling in love with Megan or whether he's just protective of her. Clearly, he's attracted to her, but but it's fantastic and, uh, just just the way it's done. And also, that then sets up Megan's transformation into the Goblin Princess later on, as she kind of her powers interact with Inferno, and they all uh, well, Captain Britain becomes corrupted by Inferno as well. Um, I think one of the great things about this is that you know Alan Davis has got a very I mean, he's got a stunningly beautiful illustrative style, and this shows off his cartooning chops again with the animated cars. I mean, it's just fantastic the way that he can um, show that interacting with realistic figure work as well, which is great. And again, there's a great cliffhanger at the end of this. It's, it's brilliant. It also shows his uh, horror side because yeah. he has uh, he does all these demons and monsters, which we haven't seen yet in this book. Um, well, I guess we actually we kind of have. I mean, like Tweedledum kind of looks in a similar style and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. He's got he's very good at the way that he does it is he draws those elongated arms. Um, yeah. And he draws the slightly shorter legs. That's a trick he pulls off of the demons. But yeah, facially, yeah, Tweedledope's very similar to the demons. Um, and Rachel turning to mannequin, that's got a strong horror feel to it as well. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, this is a this was a fun issue. I, I wasn't expecting anything from an Inferno tie-in, but it actually they did a good job. And then they also set up the uh, this train comes into a, a train station, and it's got sort of yes. this uh, this German Nazi um, insignia and and symbols on it. They don't know where this train has come from, so they're setting up a future future storyline. And we are met with two new characters here: Alistair Stewart. And his sister, what is his sister's name again? Alisand, which is not a name I'm familiar with. Alisand, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I don't know maybe it's if, it, if it's a, maybe an Irish name. I've never heard of anyone called at all. But yeah, this is this has got this really builds on uh, I think Alan Davis's and Chris Clement's love of Doctor Who. It's a bit like the I can't remember they're called Doctor Who, but there was a brigadier who dressed very much like Alisand. Um, and that, and, and I think Alistair's got a touch of the Doctor Who's about him as well. Um, those, those are those are great characters. It's quite interesting. The train as well that comes into it, the, the Nazi train, um, does have a reverse Scotrail logo. Sorry, not Scotrail, British Rail logo on it, um, and that kind of follows up from a rather throwaway scene earlier on where Moira McTaggart and Callisto disappear uh, into into under a railway bridge. Um, and Widget is transporting them somewhere else. So obviously he's 
somehow swapped our realities train for a Nazi version of the train as well. Right. Um, and it's a set up for the, the Lightning Squad storyline later on. It's, it's brilliant. The visuals are great as well, the redesigns of those two characters. Yeah, they're really good. Yeah, excellent. I'm going to get a leopard print coat just like that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, we can carry on here. Excalibur number seven. This is another part of a of the Inferno saga, and this this cover is fantastic. So the the yeah. back cover doesn't get a separate image; it's a wraparound cover where this demon is going to marry Mannequin Phoenix with all of the other characters kind of on the back cover. Uh, brilliant, brilliant stuff. It just looks so great. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning. Uh, in here, in this one, it's called Goblin Morn. And the the team tries to navigate Inferno through New York, but it has affected each of the characters in a different way. Brian and Kitty are trapped in this kind of this alternate fake film world, movie world, where they're set through uh, sent through different movie scenes like Rambo, uh, Friday the Thirteenth, and Nightmare on and on Elm Street, and uh, finally like a. I don't know if it's a specific movie, but it's like a melody on Broadway type film. And yeah. those those first three, Rambo and Freddie and Jason, were all very, very popular movies at the time that this, this comic were made. Yeah, those were big over here too. And I think there's a there's another movie reference. What was it? Oh yeah, there's a Forbidden Planet movie reference on page two eleven when they're talking about uh Robbie the Robot and Altar four. Um, Nightcrawler stumbles upon this movie scene. Yeah, uh, this was another fun issue. A lot of really uh, bizarre things with just the mannequins, the the demons. Um, I I just love how how wide in variety there is in this one issue. You can go from ballroom dancing to talking gargoyles to a, a nightmare wedding. Like it's just it goes everywhere. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the mannequins because. The film Mannequin, the Kim Cattrall film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in the late 80s as well. That's right. That probably uh, was around this time. Yeah, I loved that film. I think the film is maybe Dance in the Rain or a Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers one. The scene in 214 and 216 where Brian's dancing with Kitty and nearly kills her by dancing with her. That's, that's fantastic. This The storytelling is just phenomenal. Um, particularly in two one six, it's just it's just amazing the way he draws that. Yeah, yeah, really, really good. Yeah, singing in the rain is not um, Ginger Rogers. It was who was it? Um, Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds, Carrie Fisher's mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I watched that one recently. Actually, it's a great movie. Yeah. Do you have anything more you want to say about this issue? Oh, we should get a good scene in this issue with Shadowcat. Holding the soul sword and getting uh, like the armor c- covered in armor, and apparently, like this is Shadowcat and Ileana have an interesting relationship because they're best friends, and and uh, this is just kind of a hint of a little bit of what's going to come as well for Shadowcat. Um, yeah, and one of the biggest stories in the New Mutant side of Inferno is that magic. Um, like Ileana completely embraces the dark child and then eventually rejects it completely and becomes a little girl again. So the soul, sto- soul sword is up for grabs. That scene is quite interesting. When I was 
again, I, I mentioned in the last episode about the Modern Masters interview with, with Alan Davis. He mentions how why they changed Captain Britain's costume through the course of the series because the um, colour separator was struggling to differentiate between his muscles and the line work in the costume. So oh. that's why he doesn't have a costume for several issues and they bring uh, in a simplified design. Um, and you can even see in 218 where Captain Britain's line in his costume has been shredded. They miss out some of the white uh, line work on his on his left arm. Oh, yeah. um, and that was something... Um, it was never really an issue with the Marvel UK comics because they were always printed black and white. Um, but, I mean, that is a, is a very complicated costume to draw. Um, the helmet is deceptively hard to draw. Um, but, I, it's, it's yeah, so that's why that costume disappears for a while. Huh, that's interesting. I, I wondered yeah. about that, yeah. Um, I, I love that design. I think, I mean, the original design by, I think it's either Herb Trimpey or John Romita with a line rampant at the chest. I love that design, but my favourite one is, is uh, yeah, the, the, the 80s Captain Britain costume, the first one that Alan Davis designed, that one. In the scene where they, uh, when, when Megan and Brian are dancing, oh no, sorry, yes. when Shadowcat and Brian are dancing, and Megan is the goblin princess. She speaks, she says something here. She says, typical, you always fail me, Brian, when I need you the most. She said yeah. it out loud. And that, I feel, is like a subconscious feeling that she finally is able to to say. And this really sort of sets the ball moving for her own insecurities and her own feelings throughout the next few issues. Yeah, and the next issue, she gets her. She finally gets her moment in the sun where she rescues him for a change, mm-hmm. and and also that scene foreshadows him start to lose his powers as well. Right, um, because he starts um, wheezing like an old man. Um, I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> wheezing like an old man as well, <laughs> and that's just from reading that scene. <laughs> issue eight. It's really interesting because uh, I love Ron Lim's run on Silver Surfer yes. and Captain America. But when I got this at the time, I was disappointed it wasn't Alan Davis. Um, oh, and sure. I think that's partly because it was just so unusual seeing anyone draw Captain Britain but Alan Davis because that's all I'd ever seen. But yeah, I think this is a, this is a solid issue. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's interesting because you can see from a plotting side, what Alan Davis was bringing to the table, because it's not got quite the same chemistry that Claremont and Davis had. It's still really good, and I think it's still really good um, scenes in it. And it's, but it's one of those quiet issues that that Chris Claremont used to do uh, really well after he did a kind of, you know, a couple of issues that were quite action intensive. This one is is quite heavy in the comedy. It's also got a lot of. Um, character beats in it um, what I quite like is it does focus on Brian and, and Megan more than maybe it has done I, I totally yeah. agree with you that Claremont obviously favours the X-Men characters to this point but I think it's, I think it's a good issue I think it just suffers a little bit because Alan Davis is amazing, he's just absolute top tier, it's elite level and Ron Lim's great but Alan Davis just I don't know, was just knocking the ball out of the park with Excalibur of the issue. This was also still pretty early for for Ron Lim. Like we're not in we're not even in the nineties yet, and the nineties is where Ron Lim really explodes. Right. So was this before this was certainly before his Captain America run. 
This would have been before Silver Surfer, then. This was definitely before Silver Surfer, because Silver Surfer was... Actually, this was probably about two years before Silver Surfer. Wow, wow. I mean, it's still a, still a great issue. It's just... Sure. Yeah, absolutely. with Alan Davis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in this one, also, we get in more about Megan. We learn more about her powers. She subconsciously yeah. mimics the people who are around her in sort of like a chameleon mode, I guess, to blend in. Uh, she takes on different skin tones and such in order to just, uh, you know, being able to relate to people more, I guess. Um, so that's interesting. And then through the various different people that she meets while going through New York, she learns a little bit, uh, a little bit more about herself. I really like the, I mean, one of the things we've talked about a lot is Alan Davis's comedic chops. And Rod Lim has them as well. The scene in 238 and 239 where uh, Brian started to lose his powers and he doesn't know why yet. And to prove that he's Captain Britain, he, he goes to lift up the taxi. <laughs> right, yes. It's a really, really good scene where there's a big crowd around him, but by the time he actually lifts the taxi, there's no one there. Um, it's it's just really, really good. And there's a dog peeing <laughs> as well, which is just absolutely brilliant. Um Aye, so Ron Lim, I mean, he's he's clearly got great story, storytelling. You're right, it's early on, but he's, he's still he's really, really good. Oh yeah, he does great, and he he's yeah. perfect for Captain Britain as well because he's got all he. Ron Lim loves drawing the big muscles and that kind of stuff, and and uh, we get some cheesecake moments here from with Captain Britain, which yeah. I think normally typically would be reserved for women characters like She Hulk. This happened to She Hulk all the time. But Captain Britain yeah. loses all of his clothes in the middle of New York City. <laughs> yeah. That was something that was creeping into Avengers comics at the time as well, where it was um, She-Hulk would make a comment about Namor, like how broad his shoulders were or how handsome Thor was or how dreamy Hercules was. Um, and I, I think maybe that's where later writers kind of picked up in She-Hulk being um, more... Um, Sort of confident dealing with men, yeah. rather than I think it was the writer reacting to, yeah, some of the cheesecake stuff in comics and trying to flip it around to be less sexist. Yeah, at the yeah. time. So yeah, no, it is a nice, it is a nice change of pace. I mean, that's something that's consistent though, because Captain Britain's always running around <laughs> half naked when he's not in his costume, and his costume doesn't leave much to the imagination either. Uh, there is a, a near uncomfortable. It's almost a rape scene in this in this issue here at 2.40 when this guy kind of forces himself on Megan and, you know, he's saying all the, the words that'll, like, you know, don't fight me, it'll be fine, we'll, it'll feel good, you yeah. know, all this kind of stuff. And like, oh boy. Uh, but she doesn't have anything to do with it. She uh, makes a the goblin princess face, in fact, with the hair. Yeah, and, and she does away. repeatedly say, no, please. Um, yeah, it is uncomfortable. Uh, and it's kind of the comedic, semi-comedic ending to that page is uncomfortable with what's happened. Yeah, a couple of panels before, um, it's not dated well that section. Yeah, uh, Jean Grey makes a cameo in this, and she yep. does not know that Phoenix and Jean Grey are related at this point. Um, that's something that they learn later on in the uh, Days of Future Present storyline, which is one of those yes. annual stories. Yes. Uh, and I, in fact, I talk about that storyline in Fantastic Four. Man, which volume is it? I think it's Into the Time Stream. So you can check out my conversation on that in, in over there. Uh, we also get a, a cameo from Superman. Yes, and Lois Lane. 
Yeah, I noticed that one as well. Um, and it's not it's it's very overt. I mean, it's like they call them Lois and Clark by name. They call each other their actual names, so it's not like they're trying to hide it. It it looks like Clark Kent. Yeah, and Lois has been quite crit- critical. If you've seen one hyperthyroid, egomaniacal exhibitionist in skin tights, you've seen them all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe that's why Chris Clement never wrote Superman. <laughs> one of my favorite scenes in this book is when Kitty meets up with the new mutants. Yeah. And in this one, she has to confront this team that she's had a good history with, but a lot of hardship after Doug dies... And now Ileana's lost, and, and I think she thought she was killed at one point, and, and now she's a little girl. This was her best friend. Yeah. She's lost a lot. So I love the dialogue and how well Claremont handles uh, this this situation, talking to these characters. What's a little bit unusual is that um, I wonder if this was the period when they started to phase out editor comments, where, where something previously in the 60s, 70s, Certainly into the 80s, there would be an editor's note just saying to find out why Eliana is a little girl seeing New Mutants issue um, like 67 or whatever it is. Um, because it's a bit like, you know, the what you were saying earlier on about Megan, you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't know the character like in, in the special edition or issue one, issue two, and it's really explaining the powers um, progressively through the issues. If you didn't know, if you didn't read New Mutants, you wouldn't have a clue who these characters were. I mean, they're in, in different costumes as well, in the traditional New Mutants costumes. And Helena is a little girl. So with new readers, it's, it's it's not, it's forgiven. And I think that's maybe because Jim Shooter, I think, had left as editor-in-chief at this point. And he used to be very, very big on kind of exactly setting out the stall when you're introducing characters, uh, maybe for the first time to new readers. I know that uh, uh, there are times when the editors, depending on the editor, they put in a lot of these kind of notes. Now, there is one editor that says on uh, editor's note on page 231, it just says translated from Russian. Yeah. So yeah. they do put them in when they're necessary. But I think that you can understand what's going on just through talking through the dialogue. And you'd have to search to find what actually happens. Sure, absolutely. But you don't need to for this one conversation. Um, I will say, though, that this this one conversation, they're standing in the remains of the X-Mansion, which was destroyed during Inferno. And yeah. this one issue, there's one issue of New Mutants also where they are standing in the remains of the X-Mansion and they meet up with Magneto, who was their leader at the time. And... Shadowcat's not seen in that issue at all. So this scene here happens in that other New Mutants issue. I think it's number 74, something like that. And yeah. uh, But we don't get to see, we don't actually get to see this, this scene here, which is too bad because it's, it's really good, especially given the history that Kitty's had with the team. Yeah, they were almost at pains to, to keep um, the main X-Men characters away from the peripheral teams at that point as well. Uh, sometimes it, it felt too much so. They did the same thing with X-Factor as well. Um, but, yeah it's, it's, um, yeah, it's really, really good. It's really heartfelt and you can, yeah, you can see Kitty's heartbreak at the loss of her friends. So we haven't had any interview clips from Terry yet. And he does talk a little bit about the characters jumping into other books and how what the editorial process was like for that. So we can, why don't I play a little clip of that right here? 
all the creators for Marvel knew that basically what they were doing was work for hire. Yeah. And these characters were owned by Marvel. And really who you had to get permission from company policy was every Wolverine story I did, I had to get approval from Bob Harris, who was the editor of the X-Men. So basically Wolverine was part of his stable of characters. So for me doing an Excalibur story in there meant a little less work because I only had to get my own approval for right. it. <laughs> True. Uh, I didn't have to take it to a third party for approval, but certainly if Chris and Alan had been available to do that, they would have been my first choice. You know, any time I was using a character that appeared in other titles, the original creators or the current creators would have been the first people I would have turned to. And out of respect, one way or the other, I would have let them know this was going on. And I, I don't really recall any creator ever coming to me and saying, no, I don't want you to use, you know, Rachel Summers in this storyline. They might come to me and say, and this is a this is a might have, this didn't happen, but yeah. they might come to me and say, well, great, do your Excalibur story, but can you keep Rachel Summers out of it because I have this big thing planned for her in the X-Men during that time period right in the X-Men title. And we don't want to, you know, we don't want to cross continuity problems going on there. That could have happened. And again, I would have always respected that because I didn't want the fans to be seeing one version of Rachel Summers in one book and another version in another book and being confused by that. Part of the fun of Marvel was that it was a cohesive universe. Excalibur number nine, the two edged sword. After running tests on, ca the, on Captain Britain's fluctuating powers, the team is called to Scotland Yard where they meet Nazi versions of themselves. Pretty cool. Uh, I love this cover again. Really funny. All of, the, all of Excalibur is taken out and Brian is trying to get his costume on. And I feel like this is his ongoing gag. I, I mentioned yeah. this in the last episode there where, where he missed the whole fight because he couldn't find a place to change into his costume. <laughs> and so he's doing that again. It's notable also because he's putting on his original um, Captain Britain costume. Yeah, I think, I think this is maybe the best drawn issue since the special edition. It's absolutely breathtaking, that, isn't it? Stunning. Yeah, so I like how they're... Even though the X-Mansion has been destroyed, the underground levels are still fine, so they're using the danger room or the exercise training room or whatever, and... Captain Britain is wearing uh, a standard X-Men costume, just the the pants and the boots. Uh, we don't see yeah. that very often. But yeah, th there's a there's a lot in this issue, even though it's sort of a more of a talking kind of issue. Again, it's a lot of setup for for what happens next, and and the action doesn't really start toward till uh, pretty much the end of the issue. Yeah, it's got an interesting continuation of the Courtney or the Saturnine um, as Courtney Ross subplot um, and I mean that's again I mean Alan Davis draws beautiful women but the way he draws Saturnine is just fantastic and the body language again which you've picked up on before is different to Courtney Ross just our posture's different um, much more confident much more forthright much more aggressive almost I suppose um, it's, it's brilliant and I really love on page 259 the whole card game I, yeah. how Alan Davis has laid this out so that you can understand the entire game 
They must have played this for a long time, but it's all broken down so succinctly, and you can see it. The, I love how it's uh, the top tier has Nigel smoking his cigar, and he's smiling, and then you have the juxtaposition in the last panel of him completely worried, and Courtney's face is exactly the same in both of those panels. Yeah, it's really good as well in the last panel on page 260. It's emphasizing just how small he is next to her. He's in the background and she's actually breaking the panel borders. Oh, yeah. Davis that often. And the way her head is going up into the panel onto Nigel Frobisher looking panicked. Again, it's just, it really emphasizes she controls him now. Yeah, yeah, that's it's, great. It's really good. Yeah, really, really excellent. Yeah, but yeah, I, I, think, I think this is just a great issue. The setup is fantastic. The designs as well are great. I think that's something that maybe some people don't pick up on with Davis is that he does very, very good costume designs, particularly the um, Captain England. Um, his design's absolutely fantastic. That must be a nightmare to draw as well, but it's really, it's such a clever way to tweak the, the Captain Britain design at the time with the colour scheme and also with the Patsy imagery in it. It's, it's really, really good. Yeah, it's great. And I love how he has a uh, just the muted colours yeah. And the the headband with the swastika on the front, on the top of it, yeah, brilliant stuff, absolutely brilliant. He's he's just fantastic. I can't get over how how much I love this guy's artwork. Yeah, I don't know if you've picked up. I am a slight fan of Alan Davis. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's a traditional. Um, it's quite interesting. I hadn't noticed before, but if you look at Megan um, and Captain England, the the design. The colour scheme is the same as the kind of Marvel villains from the 60s, that purple and green, like Dr. Octopus, Green Goblin, even Hulk as an anti-villain, um, because that was the kind of stood out as a sort of opposite for the red and blue traditional hero colours. So that really, really pops as well. Um, that's good. Now, one thing that I was wondering about is that we see Widget again. He opens up a portal in uh, the, the Tower of London, a museum, yeah. and these guys go in, but then they come out as dinosaurs yeah so i don't know how that works exactly unless like so he he opened up a portal where coincidentally the dinosaur counterparts of these exact people were going to walk through the same door or were they actually transformed which they weren't because in later episodes or later issues we we know by the way they talk that they're in an unfamiliar place yeah i think it's it's the same with with the train and the um 616 versions of Moira and Callisto get swapped with the Nazi versions of Callisto and Moira and that's something that gets lost a little bit in the cross time caper, that kind of swapping like for like, like the idea that we've got doppelgangers in every single universe with a couple of exceptions Yeah. Um, issue 10 um, is uh, basically a flat out fight between Captain Britain and Captain uh, or sort of, I keep on calling him Captain Hauptmann, England. Yeah, there's my, there's my German. <laughs> right. <laughs> on, on great display. Um, and this is again sort of given Captain Britain after the comedic New York issue um, in issue eight, which kind of takes him down a peg, I suppose, a little bit. This kind of shows him being heroic, even though he's not at his best. Um, his powers aren't working as effectively as it could be. He's not in his normal costume. His costume, his old costume, is literally splitting. Um, and yet at the same time he still won't give up, even though Hopman England is the better fighter, he's possibly strongest. Um, he's just got that hero's 
attitude and, and even when I think some artists can maybe have played it for laughs a little bit when the little dinosaur boy is, is threatened Captain Britain rescues him even though yeah. he leaves himself with attack <laughs> uh, it's, it's great um, this issue is drawn by Marshall Rogers who's guest penciler um, and Terry Austin is inking him um, and I guess continuing the kind of Silver Surfer guest artist uh, Marshall Rogers had a fantastic run um, on, on the Silver Surfer what did you think about the art in this issue, Curtis? Well, it's um, it's definitely a, a huge departure from Alan Davis. Yeah, he makes uh, Marshall Rogers is very, very different. He he is more simplistic. He is more subtle, I think, in all of his movements and his poses, and even and even his backgrounds and such. Yeah, he doesn't have the same sort of clean line or just classic comic book look that yeah. that Alan Davis has but he's still a very adequate very good storyteller the all of the action the comedic moments and everything like that still work really well he uses a lot larger panels than Alan Davis so his yeah. artwork tends to even look sparser just because he has larger panels and doesn't pack them in loaded with detail yeah he doesn't he doesn't have the same he doesn't move the camera about the same way Alan Davis does Alan Davis does right. a lot of Overhead shot, shot from behind. Um, Marshall Rogers um, plays it safer, I suppose. He's a little bit more flat on yep. with his choice of camera angles. There's a couple of scenes in this with the fight scenes that maybe Alan Davis, I think, would have tackled maybe a bit more effectively. Page 284 and 285. I mean, that kind of money shot splash page of Captain Britain um, punching out Hopman England. Hopman England's not really in the panel. I wonder if that was in the script, you know, just show his boot and it was meant to be like a comedic. Thing, but the same thing happens again in the following page 286 with Megan punching out Nightcrawler. You don't see the reaction of um, Nightcrawler in that panel. You don't see the impact of her punch. Same with Hotman England. So I don't know. I mean, he is he is great, and I think he's a great storyteller. It's just very, very different from uh, Alan Davis. Uh, and I think after the last issue being so well drawn, um, not that I was disappointed because I love Marshall Rogers. I just think sometimes some artists are perfect fits for certain characters certain stories and Alan Davis I think is perfect for Excalibur I think Marshall Rogers is perfect for Silver Surfer and he's one of the definitive Batman artists but just it's so different than what we're used to seeing and exactly as you've said it's true and Silver Surfer is a much more subdued understated character in general so Marshall Rogers artwork will work well with this but when we have like the bombastic style of Excalibur Alan Davis really, especially since Alan Davis is responsible for creating the look and design and feel of Excalibur, it's hard to it's hard to have a, a replacement. Um, I also yeah. think that that uh, Terry Austin's not the right inker for Marshall Rogers. Right, right. It was Joseph Rubenstein that did him in Silver Surfer, wasn't it? Absolutely, and it really, really yeah. looked great. They were a fantastic pairing together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Joseph Rubenstein used brushes mainly. Terry Austin used pigment cleaners, I think, or technical pens. To ink. I can see that. Yep. Yeah. There's all the lines are so straight. Yeah. You don't get any weight in any of the curved lines or anything like that. He's he's, he's still you know he's he's a legendary artist in many oh, things, sure. but in this if it works so well. Well, and I love Terry Austin in, like, let's say, Cloak and Dagger with Rick Leonardi. Like, it's fa- he does fantastic work there. Um, just not paired very well, I, I didn't think, with Marshall Rogers here. Yeah. And then John Burke, 
of X Men. They, they are they are the definitive. Oh, of X-Men course. Artists. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Although Joe Rubenstein was amazing over John Byrne and Captain America as well. So yes. So, yeah. yeah. No, it's it's it's, it's do you know what? It's, it's it's a good issue. And again, it's just maybe missing that little bit of chemistry. And again, the subplots with Widget, the subplots with um, Saturnine get advanced as well. I really like also this version, this Nazi version of Kitty Pride, because since yeah. Kitty is known to be Jewish, of course she's the one who is being sort of captured, tortured, and forced to use her mutant powers for Nazi purposes. It reminded me a bit of the portrayal of Rachel as a hound. And what's quite interesting as well, we've not seen a different version of Phoenix or Rachel. Like I think, I can't remember if that was set up in the X-Men or not, that she's a normally there's not alternative versions of her in the multiverse. Oh, okay. And maybe, there's only, well, maybe there's only one Phoenix, because that's not something we've seen so far. Right. These different versions of Excalibur, which increase um, as the series goes on and Alan Davis brings that back in. Um, we don't see that with Phoenix, but we do with other characters. Wow, I'll have to keep my eyes open for that one. I didn't realize that. That's cool. Is there a Phoenix in the Age of Apocalypse? Uh, Rachel Summers? There is, isn't there? Uh, I think it's one of those things that was maybe forgotten about because I, I almost wonder as well, like because the, the versions of Rachel, like there's, there's just such different versions of Rachel. She changes so much, even when Chris Claremont's writing her. It is almost like alternative versions. But I don't know if that's because she's been through um, Spiral's body shop at this point as well. Um, but the character is, is just so different than the X-Men version. Um, I wonder if you could almost read it as this is an alternative version of her. Hmm. Um, I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure it's, it's she doesn't have any kind of doppelgangers um, in Excalibur. Okay. Huh. Wow. Okay, moving forward to the next issue, issue 11. This one's called The Price, also by Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin. And Excalibur here gets caught in an interdimensional portal accident when trying to exchange the Nazi people for our people. They're, they're doing this interdimensional exchange. Um, like, you, you send yours over and we'll send ours over kind of thing. <laughs> but yeah. uh, it doesn't all go quite according to plan. And they kind of disappear at the end of the book. So we don't know where they're gone. It's a cliffhanger. And there's still like a lot more to, in, in this one epic collection. But we don't get to find out the, the end of that story in particular. But there's also more about Courtney or Saturnine and Nigel because Nigel's late. He's like <laughs> one minute late for a nine o'clock appointment. And uh, he gets in really, really big trouble from Courtney, who's obviously has a huge personality change now, way more in your face, almost mean in some, in some uh, circumstances here. Yeah. It's, it's again, it's a kind of an anticlimactic issue, but again, it's one of those in between issues, uh, finishing off one storyline and moving into, uh, another like really setting up the cross time uh, caper. One of the, one of the things in this one is a kind of again it's a little bit of an uncomfortable scene in three one two where Kitty this time ends up entirely naked with only Lockheed's wings covering her modesty. <laughs> <laughs> but again, so remember she's meant to be fourteen or fifteen, so it's maybe maybe one of the other characters would be less sort of right. And then she also reappears in front of what's his name Alistair. Yeah. And he's he's yeah. an adult, so this is kind of inappropriate too. <laughs> but yeah. it's a uh, yeah. Claremont puts Kitty, especially in these situations, kind of more than once. Yeah, I think it's maybe one of those things where 
you know, it's a bit like Franklin Richards, like how old is he? <laughs> he doesn't seem to age in a, in chronological fashion. Yeah. He seems to be like 10, 10 um, years old in one in one issue and then like five years later in publishing history, he's five years old. So um, I, I think it's one of those things where they write her slightly older and maybe sort of forget she is meant to be 14 or 15. She, she does come across a lot older in this series than she did in the X-Men, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But that scene that we're talking about here, when she teleports to a weird dimension, we see some more Excalibur analogs, Captain Britain's Lion and stuff. But yeah, Phoenix yeah. is not one of them. Um, it's quite interesting because those, those analogs I don't think we ever see again. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're, they're interesting ones. Um, the costume design's not consistent with the Captain Britain costume designs, but it's but it's an interesting idea, the idea of an animal, sort of anthropomorphic versions of Excalibur. Mm-hmm. And this is just in her own bedroom. And this is kind of a throwback to, I think, issue four, where they move into the lighthouse for the first time. And Nightcrawler opens up a door and sees all these aliens and then immediately closes yeah. it. And then it's not there later. So there's weird portals or interdimensional rifts happening throughout the, the lighthouse. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of not sort of it's not established yet, but I mean, it's, it's certainly implied that Widget has something to do with this. He's, he's certainly got some kind of link to this because obviously he's transported different people between realities yeah. and swapped versions of them. And that takes us to the very end of the regular issues in this book. Uh, to continue on this story, you'll have to check out the next volume of Excalibur, which is called The Cross Time Caper. But we've still got more to talk about. Yep. Um, the next one up is... Uh, so it's the second special edition for Excalibur, Mojo Mayhem. And Excalibur seemed to... I think, did they have three? Did they have four special editions? Um, there are these two, and then there's three more of them in Excalibur Epic three Collection more. Volume 3. Right. And then I think there's one more after that, so that's, what, six? There's a lot yeah. of them. The first special edition really fits with this, because obviously it sets it up. But I'd wondered about this one, if it's weird that you put these, because Excalibur doesn't actually feature that much in this story. It's, it's, it's more of an ex-baby story than it is an Excalibur story. Yeah, I mean, Excalibur does come in at the end a little bit, but there is yeah, a, but... there is a editor's note that says that this happens during the events of the previous two issues. Because Kitty goes on an extended vacation because, yeah. uh, and she makes reference when she's on the train. Um, I have to find the page, just give me a second here. She makes references to the other dimensional Nazis. Yeah. And she is talking about Ileana, how she's gone. So, yeah, oh, yeah, here's the the note. Um, it says, this story occurs amidst the events of Excalibur 10 and 11. It, it, there's no actual real spot that you can stick this in. Because no. if she's already met, if she's already met the Nazi members, then I guess maybe it happens before the exchange um, yeah. when they try to do the exchange and then they're zapped into another dimension. It must happen before that. If that's the case, then there's a mistake because Captain Britain's in his costume and it's been destroyed. Yes, exactly. Point. Yeah, right. Um, and it's slightly off model as well, round about the, the nose as well, if I'm being pernickety, which I always am. <laughs> well, yeah, well, you're a comic book nerd, so we all are. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad you've noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I mean the art. I mean this, this, this is. I think it's 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 solid and it's it's you know it's totally fun. You know the ex babies. I think I think it's keeping with the tone of Excalibur so far. Of being something that's much more light-hearted. Of it of there being a rob. It's continuing the interdimensional themes as well. I think it comes down to whether you're a fan of the ex babies or not. And I, I probably possibly suspect they're as divisive as say Arcade is. You either <laughs> like them or you don't. I mean. I'm not a massive fan of Mojo, but I am a big fan of Art Adams. But I think this must be quite early on. Maybe he'd, he'd done the long shot series by this point, maybe some filling issues and covers. I don't think he'd have done a lot of sequential work on it. Um, no. And it feels a little bit rushed at times, but it's still, I mean, it's Art Adams. I mean, he, he was going to grow to be huge at this point. And it's, it really, um, to me, kind of, it's got so much Michael Golden influence in it as well oh for sure yeah really really shines through yeah, yeah. He's, he's really really great some of it does seem rushed and you can't help that because arthur adams is really slow because of the amount of work yeah. and detail that he put into each page which is why he never was on a regular title of his own because he just couldn't keep up with a monthly a monthly book yeah. so there are some pages that are rushed because he just had to kind of meet deadlines even prestige format yeah. books like this have to have deadlines, otherwise they'll just never come out. I do have a clip yeah. of uh, Terry Kavanaugh talking about the special editions, so I'll put that in. Those were usually assigned to me. The sales and marketing people, in conjunction with Tom DeFalco, would come and say, we want another uh, Excalibur prestige format for this quarter. Hmm. I would assume, based on sales of previous ones, in, in some case... In some cases, I also think it was easier to create those than to create a, a straight up X-Men prestige format book at that point, because there was so much continuity going on between all the X books, right. you know, yeah. the Wolverine solo title, the at least two X titles going on, the New Mutants, etc., that to do standalone stories like that was probably easier with Excalibur than it was with the larger X-Men family of books. There's not a huge amount of plot in this issue. I mean, again, there's, there's a big emphasis in uh, character beats, but I mean, that reflects Clement as a writer, I suppose. But it does actually kind of call back to the first special edition because obviously that was Rachel escaping from Mojo who then sends the Warwolves after her. The Warwolves, I thought, were a, a, a great design. And the design here is a sort of the agent he sends after them who is the agent is kind of a poor man's Boba Fett <laughs> to <laughs> yeah. a certain extent uh, who at the end there's a twist in who, on the identity of um, the agent and has really quite sort of unspecific powers he gets them to sign contracts and then he absorbs them and their powers and so absorbs their souls and like you say Cat's Landing appears in this comic again he makes a second appearance in Excalibur because Kitty's a big fan of them, but yeah, I mean, I, th I think I think the main selling point of this special edition, I had this one when I was younger as well, is um, Art Adams' artwork because you know you could tell that even though it is a bit rushed or rougher in some spots, um, the, the guy was something special and he was definitely evolving into something special. I mean, he was going to be a huge deal. Oh yeah, yeah, he's fantastic. Even this, I I really really like his his work. It's a pleasure to read. And Terry Austin is the inker here, and so his thin line work works really well with all of uh, Arthur Adams' tight 
penciling and details? Because of the details, exactly. It doesn't work so well in Marshall Rogers because he, he likes a lot of um, open space in his panels. Yeah. Okay, a few things I want to mention in here is on these pages are not numbered, this special edition. So you have to go to the big splash page where at the very beginning where the ex-babies are about to go into the um, this big room, this big um, yes. this big building, and above the doorway, there are some letters, and some of the letters are missing, but it's supposed to say House of Ideas, which is the nickname yes. for Marvel Comics. Yes, and I love okay. here the different sections of the building are some of the huge crossover things that they've they've done in the past, like Secret Wars, Secret Wars Two, and Atlantis Attacks. There's also <laughs> ones that say Invasion and Legends, and I'm not sure what those are references to. Those were DC ones. Invasion, Legends, and Crisis were are DC okay. um, events. Of course, yeah, yeah Crisis I know Crisis. Is, obviously, yeah. But Legends was one drawn by John Byrne when he went over from Marvel for Fantastic Four and he did Legends first. Okay, and then I love here uh, in on the left bottom left here is the there's a dilapidated house that's the new universe. It's collapsing. It's condemned. The universe is new universe is falling down. <laughs> I thought that's a really funny little poke at that failed that's a universe. Gem shooter. Who's a divisive figure? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I noticed that one as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a few of those wee digs um, throughout Marvel Comics of the period because Tom DeFalco was editor-in-chief at this point as well. But yeah, I mean, there's some lovely touches in this. There's some lovely detail. I think Arthur Adams' storytelling is really good as well. The sequence in the train where Kitty kind of panics when she wakes up and starts phasing through the train. Yeah. Because she's freaked out. That's, that's phenomenal. That's just really... Very well done. Very well thought out. Because I wouldn't have thought of like, yeah, the, of course she starts flying through the the the, the train, but she can't go solid, for fear of solidifying in something that's solid. So she has to just yeah. stay, uh, phased until she can get out of there. There's also another scene where she's walking on air, which I didn't know that she was able to do. She walks, up through a floor and then like through the lighthouse from one floor to the to the next by phasing yeah. through air molecules i guess or something i don't know but uh, an interesting portrayal of her powers there yeah i think her powers kind of change depending on what the story requires at that particular moment in time one of one of the things i think it's i think it's maybe i just forgot about it is that these are versions of kitty and kurt that are still recovering from the mutant massacre yes and there was the, oh gosh, was it Fantastic Four versus X-Men storyline where Kitty's saved by Dr. Doom and Reed Richards. Right, right. Because are dispersing so much. That's, that's brilliant, that comic. That's absolutely fantastic. Um, so that's post that, but she's still recovering, so she has to concentrate because her phase form is a natural state. But that's sometimes forgotten about, I think, a little bit. There are a few cameos here that we can mention. There's a scene where they uh, run into a couple of comic book creators and take their vehicle. Yep. One of those comic creators, of course, is Chris Claremont, the one with the beard. He says, why are you all looking at me? <laughs> yeah. And then we also have John Bolton and Mike Lake. And then there's a woman in there, and I don't know. They never say her her name at all, so I don't know who she is a reference to. Yeah, no, I didn't pick up on her either. Um, I think it was Rita... Uh, Ricochet Rita, was she maybe based in Anno Vicente as well? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think maybe visually she was. Yeah, I think I think she was. I remember reading that somewhere before. Yeah, the black hair and the kind of look of her. 
I think I've seen photographs Anne at the time, and yeah, she does look like. I'm sure someone out there knows. So if you are listening and, and know the answer, who is this mysterious comic creator woman who is in mixed in with these other cameos? Then please write in and let me know. It has kind of an odd ending. Yes. That really just <laughs> resets everything back to the way it was, and so this whole story was completely inconsequential. Because in the end, the ex-babies, in order to save their friend, who was... I'm not going to go on the spoiler, but in order to save their friend, they they willingly go back to Mojo World. And then yeah. their friend says, well, I got to go back to Mojo World too to look after them. So they all go back, and they all end up exactly in the same place that they started, and uh, nothing nothing has changed. Yeah, Captain Britain's point about, you know... I hardly think this is a moment for celebration. The villain won this day. Kitty explains, yeah, I bet that's what he thinks too. And it's just, it almost kind of, it's like they ran out of space. <laughs> you know, um, I don't know if that was because they were working Marvel style on it. They had to wrap it up to make the page length. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but again, I suppose it ties in with the, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Mojo, but I like the version of him that plays more up the, horror angle of the character yeah, rather than the comedic side of it because he's such a creepy looking character. And if you're going to put the ex-babies in a comic chances are you're not playing up the horror side of things. Yeah, I mean, well you could do something really interesting with that uh, juxtaposition. Um, I don't know how appropriate <laughs> You're not going to get that by the Comics Code Authority. Yeah. But um, yeah, what, what do you think about Mojo and the ex-babies? Where do you stand? Uh, well, I don't care about the ex-babies at all. Um, I'm glad they only just kind of appear every once in a while. Uh, Mojo is an interesting character, and I like him, and I like Spiral. I like learning more yeah, about. Like, yep, I like learning more about their world and 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 how he does things. But yeah, having Mojo and Arcade in the same book seems a little redundant. You were, you were really impressive when you were explaining um, Inferno succinctly yep. so one day I'm going to ask you to explain the relationship between Longshot and Shatterstar <laughs> succinctly because that is confusing it's like uh, what? <laughs> that is one that I cannot sum up right now I uh, I am not oh. as familiar so <laughs> I'll let you know sometime <laughs> no one can <laughs> okay before we move into Marvel Comics Presents I want to play a clip of Terry talking about this Excalibur story and working with Eric Larson. And I also want to play a clip of Eric Larson talking about working on this storyline. So I'll play them both right back to back. First will be Terry and then will be Eric. The Marvel Comics Presents, I did have the freedom since there were four eight-page stories every two weeks. I had the freedom to give work to a lot of beginners. And I knew I also had the time that I could put into if I hired someone who'd never you know, based on their portfolio at a convention, uh, I knew this is going to take a little more work with these people. I could slot it as an inventory story and ask the penciler if it was a new penciler to go back and redo the storytelling in some cases or to, you know, pull in for the emotional moments or to pull back for the action scenes. I knew I could help them learn their craft on a book like that. I wasn't about to do that on a book like Excalibur, which was a high-profile title, yeah. and I, you know, I, I didn't have the time on a monthly title, honestly, to train someone. Whereas on Marvel Comics Presents with these eight-page backup stories, I could take as much time as possible to help train people. And it was 
that was great fun for me. I felt like I was really contributing to the industry and a lot of people got some of their first work in Marvel Comics Presents because of that. Well, and speaking of that, the Excalibur story that ran in Marvel Comics Presents is from Eric Larson, and that's some of his first work for Marvel, right? Yes. And yes. So that was one of the, this is one of the examples of taking one of these people and helping train them? Yep. Although Eric did not need a lot of training. Uh, Eric was very, very good at what he did. Uh, the writer, I believe, was Michael Higgins. Right was an experienced editor and had done plenty of writing as well. We took intentionally a different approach to that storyline using these sort of cartoon character stuff because I thought Eric's style lent itself to that. You know, Eric is is big and action-packed and dynamic. And again, I wanted to keep that lighthearted sense to Excalibur when we were doing a storyline with them. And so the story reflected that, the art, reflected that and eric was very appreciative of being able to do that and then consequently i believe wrote and drew a three-part story for me later on in marvel comics presents and then he was who i turned to for the 50th issue where i wanted every character who'd appeared in the previous 200 stories right. uh, to appear on the cover and he owed me one at that point so he happily <laughs> did that what had happened is I pitched, I wanted to do Nova. I was a big fan of Nova when I was growing up as a kid. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, oh, I want to do Nova. So I pitched Nova, reviving him and bringing him back. So I pitched a serial to Terry Cavanaugh so that I could write and draw this Nova thing. And I got it approved. So as soon as that happened, I was like, yes, see you, Punisher. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I left to go do that. And then as soon as I had quit the book and was getting geared up to start on that then it was like oh no we're going to be doing this new warriors thing what you have in mind for this serial doesn't fit oh no and it was like oh crap i just quit my regular gig to do this thing that now doesn't exist oh great <laughs> and it was like and terry's like well i can have you do this excalibur thing that that doesn't have an artist <laughs> i i have I have zero love for Excalibur. It's not even. It's not a book I really follow. I don't really care about any of the characters. But this is work, and I need work. So yeah, here we go. Mm -hmm. And man, that is wacky. Uh <laughs> yeah, it was. That was kind of a fun thing, and I think ultimately that was the job that got me Spider-Man. Oh yeah, it's, it's, uh, Jim Salakrip was. I showed him those samples at a convention. And I think he could see in that, oh, this guy is bringing to the, the work the same level of kind of cartooniness that Todd had been doing on the book and and a, a level of detail that, that Todd was doing on the, on the book. So it was like, oh, okay, this guy's got detail and he's got kind of a bouncy, cartoony feel for it, much more so than when I was doing The Punisher, which was the thing that preceded that. So Marvel Comics Presents, of course, is an, is an anthology book. Through There are maybe four stories per issue, and the issues came out every other week. And Excalibur had uh, uh, how many issues? How many parts is this? Eight parts to this story? And each one features a different character on the team. It highlights a different character on the team. I mean, they're all through, in throughout the story, but it's written by Michael Higgins, drawn by Eric Larson, which if you listen to those clips just a second ago, you'd know. 
and it is bizarre. It's a weird story. So uh, the whole thing is called Having a Wild Weekend. And in part one, uh, Kitty calls everybody to around her computer where all of these cartoon characters pop out of her computer and start beating everybody up. And these are obviously parodies of the Looney Tunes characters, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, etc. They, they're all dressed like superheroes. They all have some sort of like superhero powers and they all manage to kidnap every one of them except for Shadowcat, which is kind of the same thing that happened when Arcade was attacking everybody. Shadowcat was the last one standing. And they put them all in giant carrots. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was, yeah. It's it's really, really bizarre <laughs> story. They let yeah. us know at the beginning that this uh, there's a there's a text piece in this epic collection that's written right above the covers that say, though the Excalibur serial in Marvel Comics presents 31 to 38 takes place well into the future between Excalibur 34 and 35. It was originally published alongside issues 13 to 16. Yeah. I mean, one of the things is Captain Britain's in his new costume. Yeah. That's what I was going to point out. Yeah, because he gets his first co- he gets his new costume, I think, in issue 13 or 14. It'll be pretty yeah. soon toward the beginning of the next volume. So it's a little bit out of order, but that's how the Epic Collection chose to arrange these, just where the space is in the volumes. The next yeah. volume is too packed full of cross time caper in order for yeah, us quite, to get it was this quite here. A long, um, yep. Was that about nine issues or something? Oh, even more than yeah. that, yeah. Yeah. This was the first time I'd read it, and I'd read everything else in this before. Um, and I'm a big Eric Larson fan. I, I love his stuff. I mean, particularly his running Savage Dragon, which is just fantastic. This was really dialed up to 11. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> yes. Um, it was just absolutely. Bizarre! It's bonkers. <laughs> really, I honestly didn't know quite what to make of it. I was just, this is so so strange. It's kind of really taken that slapstick tone that's there in Excalibur, and I wonder if that had come from editorial or whether that had come from uh, Michael Higgins. Um, but again, I think it shows that what maybe sometimes Chris Clement people think he's quite a broad writer because he's been quite flowery at times, but there is actually. Um, he's very, very good at balancing that um, line between pathos um, and action and then the quiet moments and also the humour. Um, and this was just full-on <laughs> insanity, basically. Yes. Um, it's, it's it's crazy. But I, but I love Larson. Larson's great. Yeah, he does a good job. You can see his signature style in here, um, even though it gets a little bit even more extreme as he as he moves into his career. Uh, one thing that is very interesting about these all of these parts is that there's a splash page and then double page spreads. There are three double page spreads in each book and then it, it ends up with a, the last page as a single page because it's a, just the way the book is laid out. It has to be a single page. So this first issue actually doesn't uh, fit that pattern because the first three pages are single and then it has a double page spread but and or two double page spreads and then a single. But all of the rest of them have three double-page spreads. He tells the whole story that way, which is um, very ambitious, I think, to be able to, especially when the panels become very small and tight, and he's got scenes within scenes on one page. Um, it becomes very very interesting, but he lays it out very very well. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's experimented with his storytelling um, through the years. Like some issues of Excalibur, he'll start off with 
Um, he'll reduce the number of panels in each page as he goes through the story, and he can experiments a lot. I mean, I think Eric Larson's one of the best storytellers out there. I mean, I know his style is maybe a little bit divisive because it is cartoony. Um, yeah. I think maybe at the start of his career there was sort of unfair comparisons with Todd McFarlane because he followed him in Spider-Man. But I mean, yeah. I think his spider is even better than McFarlane's. I think he's, he's really, really good. Um, and he's an excellent writer as well. So, yeah, I mean, you can, you can, this must have been really early on in his career as well. Yeah, I think it was one of his first stuff here, yeah. Yeah, he drew a Hulk versus Thor issue, which Stan Lee scripted, um, which is different because Vince Coletta inked it. But this is all, I mean, this is this is Larson, almost fully formed. And you can see Spider-Man in this, uh, rather a Spider-Man style in this, particularly the way he poses Kitty in part two. That's a kind of typical Spider-Man pose that he'd, he'd sort of go to later on. Yeah, it's, it's, and there's a little bit of Todd McFarlane, I suppose, in page three, eight, nine, with the, um, the way that Kitty sort of is steering. I don't know, is, is Captain Britain's maybe a little bit different? But again, Savage Dragon, you can see the way they draw that. Totally, yeah, big broad shoulders and such, yep. Yeah. Yeah, Shadowcat has very Mary Jane hair, the, the way that uh, Larson drew Mary Jane back in the 90s. Yeah. You're maybe not old enough to remember that everyone, including me, had hair. <laughs> yeah, everyone's got hair like uh, John Bon Jovi. It's quite funny. That's awesome. Although, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> okay, so the second part of this story here features Kitty. So each, like I think I said this before, each issue of this serial focuses on a different member of Excalibur. And in this, they each have to kind of face a subconscious fear that they have. And yes. in this one, I'm not exactly sure what the fear is, except for the fact that this Sylvester analog has Wolverine claws. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to figure that one out as well. Was she subconsciously scared of Wolverine? But there was a Wolverine in... I can't remember what it was actually called, but there was a miniseries featuring Wolverine and Kitty, and that's one, again, that like some people think that's where Kitty just got a, bit, a little bit too because that's where she effectively becomes a ninja or becomes the forerunner of the shadow cat I suppose in that series Yeah, because she's a samurai by Wolverine and that one so it's odd that that would be her, her fear but the cat is also um, a robot or is technology so I wonder if that plays into it as well maybe she's scared of robot cat <laughs> <laughs> that could be just the, that's the way it is There, it this, is. One, this one is kind of just a lot of uh, setting up in order to put her in place as the one who's going to save everybody else. Yeah. And then we move over to part three, which features Captain Britain. And his fear, I feel like, is his past failures, which are represented in his old costumes. Yes. Uh, and alcoholism is part of that uh, because he sees a lot of um, like beer bottles on the beach at one point. But yeah, he has to defeat his former selves in order to move forward. Each one of these issues is uh, features a whole ton of different culture, pop culture references, and this one has the Beverly Hillbillies. We, we had that over as well, so um, yeah, I caught that reference. Although it was quite funny when I was reading it at first, I thought, is that Megan? Uh, just because of the way he draws, I don't even know the name of the character from the Beverly Hillbillies, the lady in the denim. <laughs> hot pants yeah uh, yeah i don't know what her name is either that's not a show that i'm too familiar with 
there's also um, an ongoing Wizard of Oz theme in Captain Britain's stories here that plays up toward the end of this book. It's a this is a good one. Um, a lot of fun seeing the old costumes kind of come back and and fight Captain Britain, especially since he's been ditching his costumes in the past few issues. Yeah, I think this is maybe the strongest, maybe the strongest episode in this. It's gonna run. I mean, page three nine four and page three nine five. I mean, like I said, I think I don't think anyone can draw Captain Britain as well as Alan Davis. But this, this, I mean, I, I think it's lovely. Particularly that panel of the two alternative Captain Britons smashing into him, and that's a kind of that's very similar to Captain Britain's appearance in Marvel Team Up, where he fights warped versions of himself at that point as well, yeah. which is a bit of foreshadowing. Um, so it's it's really really good. Um, and like you say, the kind of way he does those um, double page spreads, yeah, it's, it's great storytelling. Part four is called Like a Housewife, and it stars Megan. And Megan finds herself in an I Love Lucy type setting. I, I love this. And the, the whole the whole kitchen comes to life and tries to kill her. <laughs> Knives yeah. are springing out of the, the doors. Monsters, is it? So there's the is monsters and the Adams yeah. family are both represented yeah. here in this storyline as well. So here's here's what I here's my take on this story here. Yeah. Megan tries so hard to fit into what society considers to be a normal a normal family. Um, I Love Lucy is a representation of the typical family unit as the typical American family unit. And the Munsters and the Adams family are also the typical family unit, just with distorted characters. So uh-huh. I think her fear is not fitting in properly. And so when she starts yeah. off, she doesn't fit in in the I Love Lucy world. She can't interact well with that world and it fights back against her and then she meets up with the Munsters and the Adams family who she can she she can relate to a little bit more but their world is so bizarre as well that she just doesn't fit in and then there's dragons at the end and I don't even know where that fits in but that's it's uh, kind of my take on on this issue here yeah I think I think I think you're right I think what's quite interesting as well is so when Megan is introduced um, in the Captain Britain Marvel UK comics. She can't read or write, um, and she's because of the way she looks, her family didn't really bring her up. They used to put her in a caravan, um, and she would just watch TV. So she was raised watching TV. Um, so on page 405, when she says, um, I don't know any of you TV rejects, that doesn't really follow her character because she's obsessed with TV. That's something which, which really forms an integral part of her character. Um, oh, okay. So in the Captain Britain Marvel UK comics where Brian walks in and she says, Shh, Brian, I'm watching Coronation Street. And certainly the Munsters and Adams family were, and those were on TV in, in Britain fairly regularly in, in, in the 80s. Right. Her love of TV, I think they could have played up in that a little bit. And I think Chris Clement probably would have. Um, maybe Michael Higgins wasn't as familiar with those comics. I think Terry Kavanagh was. Yeah, I think it was too. So, But I'm, I mean, that's a small detail. Yeah, if you yeah. haven't been buying those comics overseas regularly. Yeah, definitely. Well, moving into the Nightcrawler issue, Nightcrawler finds himself as a uh, carnival act in, in a circus. He's behind bars. People are looking at him. I guess it's maybe like a freak show kind of thing, which ties back to his past as an acrobat. Yeah, he grew up in the circus as well. Um, and the characters, the kind of popular culture that, that really gets pulled in most strongly here, is Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yep. Um, I think that his fear is sort of 
yeah, fitting in, and that kind of plays back to his original appearances where he would have an image inducer, so yeah. he'd appear normal. I think the double page spread here, um, I get lost a little bit, I suppose, when I was reading this, exactly what was happening when he gets pulled out of the rabbit, and how he changes from being you know, blonde-haired and, and blue-eyed, and he comes out of the rabbit, and he's in his Nightcrawler guys. I think it was maybe partly because of the true binding of the epic collection. It would have been easier to read in a comic where he could fold it flat. Yes, I think that's very true. Yeah, I get a little bit lost in that in that sort of sequence. Um, but I think again, again, this is this is a good issue. At one point as well, kind of when I was reading it, because of the colouring, the larger lady that's <laughs> in it, her costume is very similar to Megan's at this time as well. Right. Because they were kind of they were intercutting it with what was happening with Captain Britain as well. Um, for a second, I get kind of taken out and I thought, oh, is that Megan? So I jump in and then I can actually notice. Um, that was just the character from from uh, the background there later on. Yeah, it was just the colour. Um, just the, the design is very similar to Megan's. And again, what did what do you think of the last couple of panels in that with Megan's interaction with Nightcrawler? Did you feel that was in character or out of character, or just maybe it was the way it was drawn? It was a bit too exaggerated, or uh, I find that they really play her up to be sort of a bimbo character. Yeah. And, I mean, she does have those kind of stereotypical aspects, but Alan Davis is a lot more subtle with it, or Claremont's a lot more subtle with it. So, yeah, just to give her give Nightcrawler a kiss on the cheek is something that I don't think we really see because she, she doesn't tend to be overly physically affectionate with people other than Captain Britain. Um, it looks like, when I was looking at it, I thought it was like fill on the lips. As well, and he seems so surprised about it. Um, oh yeah, well. maybe. So, yeah, yeah. I can't tell yeah. if it's actually on the cheek or on the lips or not. I don't know, but yeah, his arms his arms are not holding Megan. Um, he's as surprised as we are. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Oh, yeah, the last the oh not the last chapter part six is uh, features Phoenix surrounded by fire. Her fear, I think, is obvious. She fears that the Phoenix is going to take over or that she, everything will be consumed because of her. So she revisits characters from her past or technically our future, like the old adult version of Kitty Pride from Days of Future Past and the Dark Phoenix uh, from the past from, from the past X-Men issues. And uh, there's a Star Wars parody in here. One of the visually interesting things here is on page 423 when Phoenix is talking to this Tweety Bird character, she becomes old and withered. And that's a reference to an issue of X- of classic X-Men. I think it's eight. Or or maybe this is just the regular uncanny issue with the Dark Phoenix. When, when Jean Grey sacrifices herself and the Phoenix tries to take over, it turns her really, really old, just like this. Uh-huh. And so I think that's a reference to how the Phoenix Force will eventually consume Rachel. Right. That must be an, a classic X-Men backup. I've never read that one. Um, yeah, it's, it is in the... Uh, it's in X-Factor Epic Collection Volume 1. Right, okay. Uh, and it's... Yeah, it, it, it talks about what happened on the ship, how the Phoenix was talking with Jean Grey, uh, try, trying to talk Jean Grey out of killing herself in order to right. save its its own life. And it was slowly, slowly withering her away so she's older and older. So it looks uh-huh. just like that, though. Yeah, this is probably the, dark, the darkest one of, of the 
storyline so far. Definitely. The visuals of it are dark and torn until Tweety Pie shows up, really. Yeah. Uh, and on page 424, the last page of this this issue here, Sylvester breaks through a wall and starts to go kind of crazy. And that pose in the top corner there is exactly Bill the Cat from the comic strip Bloom County. Uh, it's not exactly... Yeah, it's just the pose. <laughs> they, they, he copies that face exactly. He's really, really good at uh, drawing expressive cartoon characters. Yeah. Really, really good. Really good. And it's weird in the interview, he says that it wasn't exactly his, his interest or his thing, but he's still good at it. Uh, keeping moving on here to part seven. This one, I, I, this was the unexpected chapter for me. It stars Lockheed and Widget. And it's pretty much a pantomime issue because neither of these characters talk. Yep. It's kind of weird that we're getting an issue that's focused on Widget because as far as we're concerned in this book here, we really don't know anything about this character right now. Uh-huh. And, and it's weird that it has a personality and is talking to Lockheed because we haven't reached that part of the story. So uh, there is a Get Smart parody. We see a couple characters from Get Smart. And the the page that's the most fascinating to me, just in terms of storytelling, is page 428 and 429. Because you have so many panels in here, and you have three different storylines going on. You have the Captain Britain storyline, you have the Shadowcat story, and you have the Lockheed story. And all three of them are split up amongst these two pages, because they're all happening at the same time. Yeah, it kind of gives it, particularly in the last tier, um, with the kind of get smart analogs um, and Lockheed and Widget. Yeah. It kind of reads almost like a newspaper strip. Yeah, um, yeah. Just because of the size of the panels and also the really, really cartoony way that he, he draws it. He draws it in a very impressionistic way, I suppose. It's, it's less sort of um, heavily rendered than maybe the Captain Britain storyline, for example, because they are much more cartoonish characters, Widget and Lockheed, I suppose. Right. There's a bunch more pop culture references in here. The White Rabbit is Woody Allen. Yeah. And we have also, if you go to page 431, uh, or 430 is a is a typical, I'm not sure who this character is supposed to be. It's kind of like a Dick Dastardly or a Snidely Whiplash kind of character, tying the dragon onto the train tracks. Tying onto the train tracks, I always think of Penelope Pitstop, but that was a hooded claw, but yeah, it definitely looks a bit more like I suppose it's the garb of the hooded claw, but with Dick Dastardly's face, I suppose. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah, you're right. The hooded claw had the top hat, and yeah, uh, yeah Dick Dastardly had the, the longer nose. and the. This guy doesn't have a curly mustache, which is the confusing thing. No, no, or Muttley as well. Um, which right. Which is the only thing I remember about <laughs> Dick Dastardly. It's got an <laughs> Acme train as well in there as well, which is a nice reference. Right, yeah, to the Looney Tunes, for sure. And then in the bottom, on the bottom row of page 431, we see the Lone Ranger riding um, what's supposed to be Scooby-Doo, and he says, hi-ho, shooby away. <laughs> so, kind of Was funny. Scooby-Doo? I didn't even pick up in that. Yeah, I think so. It's, it's a dog, and he says, hi-ho, shooby away, instead of hi-ho, hi-ho, silver. So I think yeah. it's supposed to be Scooby-Doo. Yeah, of course, yeah. And someone's doing a kind of shaggy sort of, kind of of comedic noise maybe although I know that's Maxwell's heart right um, yeah, some of these references were a little bit lost to me because again it's I didn't grow up in North America so I probably didn't get a lot of the same TV yourself so I didn't get uh, get smart at first although they did repeat that over here oh, okay. it wasn't as it was like the Munsters and Adam's family at the end of this issue Shadowcat pulls the same trick 
that uh, the Wicked Witch of the West does in Wizard of Oz and creates a poppy field to put everybody to sleep. And that's how she defeats all of the Looney Tunes characters. Would I do guess by this point in the storyline who the mysterious film Not at all. I totally didn't guess. I should have. Right. No. It's painfully the, obvious. The only reason I guessed was, again, because Captain Britain fights alternative versions of himself. Um, and I always thought back to those beautifully drawn uh, John Byrne drawing issues in Marvel Team Up. Um, right. That a similar trick pulled there. That's the only reason I got it. Okay. I guess what it was. Right. So, yeah, this last chapter here is called No Place Like Home. And, yeah, we find out that the evil mastermind behind everything is Arcade. Uh, he he's a floating head like the Wizard of Oz, and Shadowcat brings in her own line of Looney Tunes characters to beat up the other Looney Tunes characters. So, a really really bizarre, funny double page spread where all of the Looney Tunes are fighting each other. This reminded me of the ending to the Key Skull War, where Rick Jones <laughs> yeah. summons forth Golden Age heroes from his head, um, which is absolutely. A bizarre ending to the Kree Skull War. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's what this reminded me of. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know if that was intentional or not, or whether I was just reading into it. It's just that last panel in 437. Even even the posture, it's a bit like, I think it's the eagle when he's running forward with his cape coming out behind him. That's what that really reminded me of there. Right. I mean, and, and they're obviously meant to be some kind of version of Avengers because you can see a sort of version of Thor, a version of Captain America. Right, yes, yeah. Um, I'm not entirely sure who Elmer Fudd at the front is meant to be, but you've got Speedy Gonzalez as kind of the Flash down there as well, or maybe the Wizard. So yeah, that's what that reminded me of. That's funny. So overall, I felt like this story, it was fun. It was nice, nice to kind of go dig into their psyches, and you wouldn't even know that that's what they're trying to do if you're just kind of flipping through and not really paying attention. And overall, I think that they were trying to use the same brand of humor that they were putting into the Excalibur book at the time, but they went a little too over the top. So it didn't quite feel like it fit. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I think maybe that's partly exacerbated because there's an increased amount of uh, guest artists and also uh, the sequence of the comics. You've got Marshall Rogers, Ron Lim, and then you've got Arthur Adams drawing the special edition. So the front end, you've got so much Davis, and then the back end of the book or rather the kind of middle of it, you've got a huge chunk of non-Davis work, um, then it goes into Herb Trimpey, and then you finish off in some Davis. So, I don't know, did you feel this fitted the tone of the book? Or do you think they could have used alternative material? I mean, the stuff I thought that would really fit would be to be more stories from the Captain Britain UK run, um, but I don't know if that treads in the toes of the, the other volumes, the, the, the Panini volumes too much. What do you think? Uh, I am glad that this series is in here. I yeah. really like the Epic Collection mandate of including uh, the the one-off issues or the mini-series and that kind of stuff in there. So I wouldn't want it to not be included, but it does feel a little out of place. But I think that's kind of natural for any of these, especially for the Marvel Comics Presents stories, because they are often drawn and written by people who are not as experienced either in just writing or drawing comics, or with the characters, yeah. so it's fine. I'm glad it's there. It's still a fun story, but yeah, it definitely doesn't hold a candle to the the actual series, and you know, I don't expect it to. Yeah, but those are the things that aren't going to get collected anywhere else. Um, you know, yeah. and, and for comics, they want to see, like, you know, I mean, a lot of comics fans don't necessarily get it for the creators. That might have changed now, certainly. 
think it was 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it was very much people collected the characters um, as much as anything else. I think it's I think it's great to include from that point. And also it's fascinating seeing Erlen Arson and Erlen Adams as well. Yeah, totally. It's a good bunch of collect uh, of artists in this one book. I mean, Alan Davis, Arthur Adams, Eric Larson, Marshall Rogers, like and Ron Lim, all in one yeah. book. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah, definitely. Who do you feel was strongest at this stage in their careers? Then of the early of the early guys between Ron Lim, Arthur Adams, and Eric Larson. Who do you think was most fully formed at this point? I mean, I think they're all pretty good. They're all pretty really good. good. I think Arthur Adams definitely was the most fully formed at this point. In fact, I don't really think that he even progresses much beyond this. <laughs> All of his previous work, but which is not a slight because it's great, but I think that he yeah. he knew exactly what he could do and what he wanted to do, and he just kept on doing that. Um, and yeah. nowadays he just does covers, which is fine. Yeah. But Eric Larson gets better, and Ron Lim definitely gets better. And these days, I find that his artwork doesn't fit with what, with like modern techniques and that kind of stuff. Yeah, he does quite a lot of stuff, strangely enough, for Marvel UK comics now. Uh, Ron Lynn. Oh, really? Which I discovered okay. by accident when I was buying some comics for my kids. Yeah, yeah. He does like kind of Spider Man and Avengers stuff, um, which is Marvel UK comics now is. They've got different ones, which essentially ones that just totally reprint, um, like three issues to, um, three American issues to a, to a British comic for like a few quid. But then they do comics which are more aimed at kids. It's a, it, they come bagged with a toy, um, and there's maybe five or six pages of comic in a 20, 30-page comic. They're very slim. They're quite expensive because um, it's mostly about the free toy, and there's like lots of puzzles and stuff like that in them as well. They're not oh, okay. kind of light-touch comics. But he draws them, um, and his style, yeah, is, is very different than what's published now. Right? Wow. Like you're, you're told. Well, what are your impressions of this book in, in a... Just you know, overall, it was a wonderful trip down memory lane for me of reading these comics when I was when I was younger, and it's just the thing that really jumps out at me. Looking back through it, is uh, probably the first thing is the covers. The covers are absolutely amazing. They really are. The pinups are stunning. It's just the whole package. Um, Excalibur was just such an impressive comic. I mean, X Men in that time that would have been during the Australia phase, so it's giving you something really different. Uh, and it's also giving you something which is, I mean, it's it's epic, but it's funny as well. Yeah. And I wasn't collecting PC comics at the time, but now looking back, I can see, oh yeah, this is this is consistent with the tone and things like you know, Justice League International or Sensational She-Hulk, you know, Damage Control. Uh, but this is just really, really good. You can tell that they love making it, um, and they love doing the comics with each other. Totally. It's, it seems like so much fun, and it's great fun to read. But yeah, the the main thing for me, the main selling point is. Alan Davis's art is just, it's absolutely out of this world. Um, and Chris Claremont's, you know, loving his time on it. Um, but there is a degree of repetition in, in the plots, you know, in terms of what happens. and But that doesn't take anything away from it. It's still absolutely stunning. Well, I thank you for joining us for this episode. <laughs> I know I had a, a great time going through this, and I'm glad that you brought your Captain Britain expertise into play because it was definitely needed uh, on my end. And did you understand my accent? Okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Struggle with it. Well, you know, if uh, if people don't understand your accent, then you know, you guys, you need to w- listen to this over and over again. It'll just help my download numbers. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, next time I, I won't have a cold either. I'll sound less manly. 
Yeah, we'll be back next time. Uh, next time you're on the show to talk about Excalibur, Volume Two or Episode Two, the Cross Time Caper. So be be on the lookout for that one coming at some point in the future. I don't exactly know when. Yep. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure speaking to you. It's yeah. so good to actually speak to someone that loves comics as well. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Likewise, and, uh, tolerates my geekiness. Good. <laughs>